freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Ali, Roxana Espos, and Pallas Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the guitar wizard and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy's generosity and commitment to peace and justice is legendary. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom. Tom's book, Whatever It Takes, tracks his lifelong journey as an artist, an organizer, and an activist. The book is both illuminating and rousing. Get it at tommorellobook.com. One word, tommorellobook.com. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle towards a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. So let's keep asking. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is Questionnaire by Wendell Berry. One. How much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please name your preferred poisons. Two. For the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evils and acts of hatred. Three. What sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. Four. In the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces the mountains, rivers, towns, farms you could most readily do without. Five, state briefly the ideas, ideals, or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. Our second regular feature is a free write, where you can pause the podcast and write wildly on this prompt. Write your own questionnaire with at least five questions you'd willingly share with family, friends, or associates to encourage them to consider the deep dimensions and glaring contradictions of our modern predicament. Okay, we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I'm here with Robert Shetterly, artist, teacher, organizer, and activist, widely known for his portrait series, Americans Who Tell the Truth, which he began a couple of decades ago, intending to paint 50 portraits of peacemakers and freedom fighters, dissidents and dissenters, loving rebels and justice-seeking radicals, a gathering of 50 citizens from a country that does not yet exist. All these years later, those 50 original Americans have been joined by hundreds of others with no end in sight, and the portrait project has entirely jumped the tracks. Everyone listening needs to discover this dazzling, multifaceted art education activist project. I'm so delighted you're here. Welcome, Rob. Oh, thanks, Bill. I'm so delighted to be talking with you, and I've always been uh incredibly impressed by the way in which you frame my project. <laughs> I mean, that uh, quote of, of paint that I'm painting portraits of citizens of a country that does not yet exist uh, has stayed with me ever since the first time I heard you say it. And, and you know, we used it on the front piece of the, the recent book about uh, the portraits of racial justice. 
Right. I want to I jump to that book. I definitely want to jump to that book. But let's start by telling folks who don't know, um, Americans Who Tell the Truth. It started over two decades ago, I believe. Um, and it started with you angry at your government, which is a, something I share on a daily basis, um, and, and um, discouraged or, or energized by wanting to say something about, uh, about what was wrong, what was out of balance. So maybe talk a bit about the origin of Americans who tell the truth. Sure. Um, some people um, who were paying attention will remember that in the wake of 9-11, Actually, if you were really paying attention, it was just a few hours when Donald Rumsfeld started talking about a possible response to 9-11 would be to attack the country of Iraq. And that gathered momentum for the next several months. And then for the next year and a half, there was this increasing drumbeat of alarm and fear and uh, patriotism, jingoism, anger against Iraq as though Iraq's you know, was somehow involved with 9-11, was involved with Al-Qaeda, and in fact had, um, you know, was helping to, had helped to take down the, the Twin Towers and also had these weapons of mass destruction. You know, none of those things was true. And if you also want to spend some time researching that and reading the reports of the weapons inspectors who had been on the ground there for over 10 years, you would know that this was impossible for this country. It was decimated. By the sanctions. I mean, it was one of the poorest countries in, uh, in the, certainly in the Middle East. And I was aware, you know, I've been, been alive long enough um, to know that my country, uh, any country, as Howard Zinn would say, uh, every country, you know, lies to its people from time to time. And ours has a particularly a particular penchant for doing it around military matters. And you know, my adult lifetime has been. Uh, sort of ricocheting from one military conflict to another, starting with Vietnam um, and all the other things leading up to Iraq um, that we're, we're lied about. And um, people died for, you know, people died, American soldiers died, and many more people on the other end died. And I was so upset that this was happening again. And partly at the government because um, they were lying, and I knew they were lying. And uh, but I think my most serious anger was, in some respects, um, aimed at the media. I mean, um, all that information was there. All the questions were there to ask from the major media. You know, why were we doing this? You know, follow the money. Follow the, you know, the interests of uh, the weapons deals. Follow the interests of the oil companies. Follow the interests of the Israelis, for that matter, and their control of the Middle East. How are these things all working together? And why was this worth, you know, creating a, a, a preemptive war against a country that had no ability at all to attack us? I was so upset about that that I thought, Either I should just leave this country and find another place to live, uh, which then you think, well, how do you get away from the United States and the world? Um, or the question was, you know, what can I do in response? You know, in, in terms of the, the issues of, the, of your, uh, this program, Bill, and what you'd like to talk about, I mean, the explorations of freedom, I was feeling my freedom shrink to the size of a pea, you know, because my country, my taxes, my people, you know, my, you know, my sense of myself as a person was being used against me and against other people in the world. And I felt incredi incredibly alienated both from this country and from myself because I was put in this position of having to, or at least seeming to have to go along with something that I knew that was, you know, outrageous. I mean, we, um, you know, in, in after World War II at the Nuremberg trials, you know, we hung people, you know, for a preemptive war. And we were doing that. You know, this was a this was a war crime. This was a crime against humanity. And we were being sold on the basis of this horrible and ridiculous fear that somehow Saddam Hussein was going to be dropping nuclear weapons or chemical weapons on the United States. I think the probably the lowest point of this in a way may have been Colin Powell at the UN when he held up these little vials of white powder and claimed that they were a chemical weapon, you know, 
that was recovered from these mobile labs in, in Iraq. He knew he was lying. Uh, I think most people in that room knew he was lying. The people sitting around him there, uh, George Tenet from the CIA, they all knew he was lying. And he did it. You know, and it was just horrible. I mean, it was like saying, you know, we're going to tell these lies. We're now going to go out and murder a whole lot of people, including our own soldiers, you know, for the sake of this lie. And I kept thinking, well, what can I do, you know, to retrieve some sense of my own freedom at this moment and to make a statement against what's happening? And I knew that it wasn't going to be found in ranting about Dick Cheney any longer. You know, that, that was not going to work. Nobody, and besides that, you know, nobody wants to hear uh, another person's anger over and over again. I knew that I had to take the, all that energy from the, the anger and the grief I was feeling and try to do something positive with it. The question was what? I mean, the thing I do best is paint, so I knew that it had to involve painting. And I kept thinking, well, okay, what do I do? You know, what do I do at this moment? And then it became kind of strangely clear. I looked at my own studio wall. I mean, so many artists have walls of other people's, you know, statements and pictures in their studios. And I looked up at that wall, and there was this quote from Walt Whitman I would, had put up there many, many years ago, you know, written in fading pencil that said, you know, this is what you shall do. And it was like Walt Whitman's, um, you know, commandment to all of life. Love the earth, the sun, and the animals. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Give alms to anyone who asks. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown. It means there are no hierarchies. Everything is connected. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, you know, if I paint a portrait of Walt Whitman and scratch those words into it, I'm going to feel better. I mean, it was all about, you know, personal therapy for at the first part. I needed, I was so upset that I was making myself sick with my upsetness. And I know you've felt that way. I mean, so many of us have felt that way. You get so wrought up about an injustice that's so glaring and so awful. And it's going to be, there are going to be so many victims. You know, you've got to do something. And that, that at least gives you a way to reclaim your humanity. Right. And I thought, um, well, I'll start surrounding myself with people like Walt Whitman, people who make me feel good about this country rather than rant about the ones who don't. And it changed my life. So that was the first portrait you painted was Walt Whitman. I painted Walt Whitman. And, and you, were not a, you were not at that point a portrait painter. Am I right? No, no, I had <laughs> I had never painted a realistic portrait in my life. Uh, I mean, I was a painter, and I had I had taught myself how to see. And in my surreal paintings, I often put realistic images, uh, you know, as poetic and you know realism. But you know, I knew so I knew. But this was what I wanted to do, and so I taught myself how to paint a portrait, and I just went on from there. And then and I began working my way through the you know, the, the 19th century. I wanted to begin in a place where uh, there were photography existed. I didn't want to copy other people's portraits. So mm. I didn't paint anybody prior to the earlier, you know, beginning of photography. So mm. Walt Whitman, um, you know. Uh, Frederick Douglass. Frederick, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Jane, Jane Adams, right. you know, uh, Mother Jones, those kinds of people. Elizabeth right. Cady Stanton, uh, Alice Paul, you know, I just, Worked my way through the, the the 19th century, and then, like you said, I thought that would be it. I'd paint 50 portraits, and then I would be free of this project. <laughs> Instead, I realized that my freedom was in the project, and it had to go on because I was. It was a, a vertical learning learning curve for me. I was, for the first time in my life, I was really learning history. You know, why these people had to exist, what the issues were, what the what was. You know, the, what were the forces that were causing the necessity of these people to exist? And then why was their courage so incredibly important to all of us? Right. And, and now, you know. So you got to 50 and you kept going. Um, had it struck a nerve in you, in others? Is that what motivated you to keep going? Yes. When I, I, when I had 10 portraits, which included a couple of contemporary people, one of my first portraits was... was um, Wendell Berry, actually, and Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky. And I put those portraits up in a little sandwich shop in Ellsworth, Maine. You know, nice. Where I live. nice. And I, I expected 
a very negative reaction because I had those done before the attack on Iraq. It was in the, I think in the fall of 2002, you know, we ended up attacking Iraq in March of 2003. And so I put them up well before that. And I thought, you know, during the midst of all this, um, you know, war fever. And I thought, I mean, I live in a pretty conservative area. And I thought people would be pretty upset uh, because it was so clear why I was doing this. I mean, I made a, put a statement on the wall about what this was about. And instead, it was just the opposite. I mean, there may have been people up who were upset, but I got calls, I got letters, I got people sending me uh, small amounts of money. You know, because one of the things I said was that I would never sell these portraits, that they had to eventually I would give the collection away. I mean, I, the idea of painting a portrait of Frederick Douglass and then selling it seemed particularly repulsive or Harriet Tubman. So um, or any of these people, I mean, they all had given so freely to this country. You know, how could you possibly sell them? So I thought, well, I will do whatever I'm going to do, and then I will give them to an institution to use for education and um, activism. And people started inviting me to come and talk to them, right. even go into schools and say, talk about who these people are, why they're important, why I was doing right. this. And it gradually, uh, and then I, I got a call from a man who said that he was a um, uh, retired from the State Department. And he had seen, a, when I had 17 portraits, I showed them in my local library, the Blue Hill Library. And he called me up and he said, he used to be in the State Department and he saw what I was doing and he was he thought he agreed with my, my politics and my assessment of this coming war. And would I like to have this, make this into a national traveling show? He knew how to do that. And could I, could he help me? Wow. And of course, of course, I called him right back. There's a man named Bob Sargent. And it turns out he told me later that he had actually been in the CIA. That he'd been posted all over the world, you know, in the in embassies as an agent, and he also totally disagreed with this, you know, national policy now, and he thought that secrecy was the the most damaging thing to democracy um, of anything we do, and so I for five years until he had a, a serious stroke, we worked very closely together, and he was the one who created the the traveling show of the portraits. Well. Wow. It completely changed my life. Contradictions upon contradictions, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things, I, I'm interested in the title, Americans Who Tell the Truth, because in the empire of lies, the truth can be a revolutionary act. And that seems to me what you're up to, that you felt the lies, the deception, the fraud, and you said, let me just shine a light on this. And, and, and that's how you begin, the truth. Exactly. I mean, the, the, you know, I, there's always some pushback, you know, people want to say, well, what do you mean truth? You know, isn't truth always relative? And, you know, of course, you know, people write novels to talk about all the relativity and, and, and complex motivations of, of the truth of what anybody does. But that isn't the kind of truth we're talking about here. You know, we're talking about the truth of, well, did we enslave people or didn't we? Mm. And if we did, you know, how did it get ended? You know, who stood up against it? And what did they say? You know, did we treat women, you know, as second-class citizens? Or didn't we? You know, what's the truth of that statement? And then how did, how did it, was it corrected? Was it corrected because men thought, you know, wised up and thought, oh, wow, we've been treating women badly? Or is it because women got together and for the first time in the history of this country did nonviolent direct action in order to get their own rights? I mean, those are truths, you know, that we need to, understand about, you know, what was the power against them? And then what kind of power could people who have been marginalized and, and, uh, you know, treated badly, what can they marshal for themselves in order to come up against the truth of their own marginalization? And how can they be successful? And that, and how does your history then move because of that willingness to stand up? That's what fascinates me. Right. And, and the courage that's involved. And, and I think there is courage in telling the truth when you live in an empire of lies. And that's one of the things that I've admired about your project for so long. I do think it's, uh, I think it's worth saying that the truth is always more complicated than any single fact or series of facts. The truth needs uh, context to circulate and so on. But that's no reason to say, therefore, anything goes. I mean, it's, it's important to rely on evidence and argument and more evidence and more argument and more complexity. You don't have to say, I've arrived at 
you know, God's truth to, to say, I'm fighting for the truth. It, it's it's sure. worth doing, you know. Absolutely. And, and you think of, um, you know, if you've got a serious problem and you want to treat the cause, not the symptom, you've got to find some way to the truth of the cause, or at least the truth that you can identify, a truth that will affect behavior or affect outcome. And when we look at, um, say, the, the problem of, of climate change, you know, you're not going to, you know, people who deny it are not going to fix the problem. We've got to look at the real causes. I mean, the, what are the true causes of this problem? And then respond by dealing with those those truths. I mean, there are manifold reasons, and they're, they they keep popping up in different ways, in different ways, and you know, in feedback loops and all the kinds of things that happen. But there are some central truths, and we know they revolve around fossil fuels and carbon part- particles in the atmosphere. And that's a great example because I would also argue that. You know, you said a minute ago, digging deeper, understanding more, understanding causes, and looking at context. I mean, I think something like um, the, the environmental collapse that we're facing, um, the the Handmaid's Tale reality for women that we're facing, these things also, have, you can dig deeper and find out more truths about where they come from. So, for example, uh, in the what I call the catastrophic capitalist climate collapse, um, which is a a dramatic way of saying it. But I think that that if you look at that, among other truths you discover, is the toxic individualism that says freedom means my freedom to extract anything, to make any profit, to mow down any stand of trees, and so on. It's my freedom. I have that right. And it's that toxic individualism that's deep in our DNA as a people, as a country, that is also part of the truth that we have to uncover and get at. I think you do that. Absolutely. You know, I was when I, before we started today, I was thinking about uh, that kind of of freedom and how that has um, come near to destroying, you know, not only democracy but the environment of this country. Uh, you know, the sense of freedom. It's a freedom to exploit, the freedom to amass enormous amounts of wealth and, and power, uh, as though that is somehow an honest freedom or the, what we would call freedom. In fact, freedom is a relational idea that has to be, in a, in a healthy society, has to be in relationship to the common good. Hmm. And uh, I love that South African term, Ubuntu, hmm. uh, where, you know, I am because you are. Right, you right. are because I am. Right. That our, our very existence not only our ethical being and our freedom, but depends on the health of each other. You know, that when I painted Walt Whitman originally, that was the idea that was underneath everything he was saying, that the success of everything, not just all people, but all living things on the planet, depends on the, the success of everything else. Right. That, that if we look at the web of life, whether we're talking about the political relationships or the ethical relationships or the natural world relationship, the biological relationships. And we start cutting those threads, saying that, well, we don't need them because we're we're at the top of this pyramid. We're more important. You know, all of a sudden we've taken all the bricks out from the bottom of the pyramid mm. and the whole thing falls down. Mm. And that's where we are. You know, we're, we're I've just mixed a lot of metaphors there. But. No, but it's, it's, it's worth doing. It's a complicated idea. And I think you're right. I mean, I think if you look, for example, at one of the, most critical events in American history, the Civil War, that was a war fought for freedom, and both sides were fighting for freedom. On the one hand, the freedom to, to free the slaves, the abolitionists, and that energy. And on the other hand, the freedom to own human beings. And if you look at the rhetoric at the time, that's what they were all saying. And you hear it again today. You hear, you know, you hear freedom thrown around as a, as a, as a, commodity and as an individual attribute rather than a social reality. Right. I mean, it's, and I think that um, perhaps the, um, you know, often we hear about the, uh, hear some talk of the, of the, some of the original sin of this country, you know, whether it was slavery or whether it was uh, the indigenous genocide. Or both. Or both, or both yeah. Or sort of wrapped up in it. Of course, it's the same mentality that, that does both things. But I think, you know, um, underneath that or next to it 
and probably even more critical in terms of um, a terrible sense of freedom is the freedom to exploit the environment. Yes. That we could, you know, move across this country, you know, cut down the trees, pollute the rivers, blow up the mountains, you know, do whatever we wanted to do. And somehow this feeding of, of uh, the profit of capitalism and expansion was an expression of a kind of freedom that was particularly American and particularly noble. And that idea is incredibly dangerous because, you know, these other others, you know, when you talk about exploiting other peoples, they're horrible, you know, and, and they have defined us, but they also don't have the same kind of ticking clock connected with our sense of being able to use the environment the same way and exploit that to misuse it, to treat other species as though they are lesser importance. That's coming back to haunt us now. I mean, all these things are coming back to haunt us now. And in one way, it's actually wonderful that all these things have come to a head like this because we're all talking about them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I've never, I don't think uh, five, 10 years ago, I would go to a dinner party with white folks and they'd talk about white supremacy. Right. You know, the word wasn't in, yeah, the word wasn't in the vocabulary. It's kind of amazing. I uh, mean, where white people are talking about their, their, the diminishment of their own freedom because of what they've done, you know, and that's a, a new thing. Well, their own individual liberty in a way. But, you know, this summer I reread Mari Sando's classic book, Crazy Horse, uh, about the great, uh, the great indigenous leader. And I had read it in the 60s. I had no idea, no memory that it was written in 1942. Uh, but what struck me, Rob, was that she not only gets into this biography of this great man and, and his people and the kind of onslaught of white supremacy and the railroads and the forts, and but the killing of the buffalo as a tactic of settler colonialism, the destruction of the forests as a, a tactic of settler colonialism and profit, always profit, um, driving towards gold, driving towards you know, minerals. It was, it's a frightening thing to read and realize she wrote it in 1942. Um, and it's filled with environmental wisdom. It's filled with spiritual wisdom and the kind of lessons we're coming to now that already existed in a population that was already here. You know, and it's, it's also, uh, you know, these things were done with a kind of uh, unreflective fanaticism where you just get so caught up in the idea that you can kill and kill and kill and, you know, sell the hides, sell the skulls, or leave, you know, millions and millions of bodies to rot in the prairies when the market has, has gone and you still kill. And you treat it as a, uh, you know, kind of a carnival of killing. Mm. It's, it's in the same thing with the destroying the forest, and the, the biggest trees and dragging them out. And, um, it's a it's a scary thing to to see how that kind of compulsion can build uh, and without recognizing what you're doing. Yeah, and I I think that's um, well, <laughs> it's, it's it's okay. You get to a point where thank God some people say you know enough. Enough. Well, you know, tell us how many portraits you're up to now, and then I want to ask you to reflect on a few of them. But how many have you painted? Uh, well, you know, I don't know the exact number now, but it's 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 in the range of 260. Um, it's a uh, it's become a you know a, a problem of, of compulsive action. I can't stop it, but it, it's at the at the heart of it, there is always a therapeutic thing for me. I mean, every every day in this country or in the world, there's there's new cause for despair. There's new cause for anger for grief for this and my way of uh, often my best way of dealing with that is identifying another person that i think i would love to paint whose whose life i would like to inhabit for a little bit whose courage i want to give myself a transfusion of and that helps me lift me up whose free in a sense in terms of freedom whose freedom to say and do certain things and res and resist other things uh, i can you know, try to, uh, you know, bring into my own self. And then by painting the portrait and taking it out, I can spread that to other people mm -hmm. as, a, as a model, as, as we say, courageous, courageous citizenship. citizenship. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I, I keep, you know, I just keep adding them for that, for that reason. Right. You had a show in Chicago. You've had shows everywhere. And Americans Who Tell the Truth now has an educational project that sends these portraits to schools that has um, study guides that go along with them, I believe. Um, talk about yes. how this is disseminating. And I know you wrote me the uh, not so long ago saying that um, that you were sending some to Florida, I believe, uh, some museum. But they're everywhere now, and I see them now and then popping up, and it it uh, inspires me. But but tell us about the project and how it's become this major arts education project for young people. Well, that's a, we. Uh, it's some, something that isn't you know held up in schools very often, and it's it's interesting that you know, for instance. Um, because of because it's art, and because and this is important to me, and I think it's important to the success of this project, is that because I take the time to try to make a good painting, you know, not just you know do a cartoon of of somebody that I admire and then take a magic marker and write a quote on it, you know, that I actually try to honor the person I'm painting and then select a you know each painting is on a big wooden uh, board and then has a quote from that person scratched into the surface. Uh, so it, and I try to catch a certain kind of gaze from that person so that they're looking right at you and challenging you in a sense to confront the, their integrity and deal with then the words that are written there and then have you, you choose how to respond to that. So I think that that has a, that component is really important that, it, that I'm trying not just to articulate something about history and activism and truth and history. I already said that, but I'm also in trying to articulate a necessity to act in response to a certain kind of uh, call to action. Right. So, um, you know, that is important. And I think that that gets recognized by the schools and museums and churches and stuff that invite the portraits in. You know, and I can go places where the portraits themselves would not get invited because it's art. You know, for instance, I can probably go to places that you would not get invited. I'm sure of it. But I, but I can take your portrait and like a ventriloquist, stand behind it and talk about you and what you did and why you did it and why you keep doing it and how important it is. You know, um, you know, as we, we started off with, um, you know, that poem of Wendell Berry's. And he was one of the early portraits of this. And the quote that's on his portrait is, the most alarming, so the most alarming sign of our society today is that our leaders have the courage to sacrifice the lives of young people in war, but not the courage to tell us we must be less greedy and less wasteful. I mean, that is a real punch. It is, you know, to capitalism. It's a punch, a punch to militarism. It's a punch to the connection of those things. It's a connection of, you know, market-driven decisions of, of you know, wasting young people's lives in order to to have a a uh, an economy of of consumerism and waste proliferate. I mean, you know, when you read that quote to a bunch of kids, and you say, "What's he talking about?" Right. You know what what are these kinds of courage? And they figure it out. They figure it out that, you know, to a certain mentality, that the success of economy is more important than success of their own lives, you know, for, for people who are in power. And, you know, when you can follow that thinking, um, it begins to open up uh, a lot of history yeah. and uh, a lot of thinking about economy, a lot of thinking about freedom. Um, and so I get into places and able to say things like that, you know, to present an idea like that. And, you know, all of a sudden you're, in a, it's just the, the fact that I made a painting allows me to get there and then to talk about really serious things. You said something that I want to underline, which is you said almost all the portraits, not all of them, but almost all of them have a person looking directly at you. And the, 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 the point you made just now is that, in a way, that's an invitation to act. These are people who are looking right at you with something that they have to say about 
democracy, education, freedom, justice, and they're looking right at you and they're saying, act. So I've been with you in spaces where we've had a couple of hundred of these portraits, and I've been with you in spaces where we've had four or five or ten. Um, and in each instance, the feeling that you have 10 or 200 people looking at you saying, do something, I think is a is a stunning kind of visual representation of my politics my whole life, which is do something. You know, don't just sit there, right? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's um, you know, the, uh, you were there at Syracuse. I was. Uh, that was the only time that the entire collection has been shown. I mean, I think at that time there were uh, almost 240 right. portraits and they showed them all. And I, I think I was as surprised as anybody else that, because I've been painting them one by one. And here was 240 paintings that took up the whole student center. Right. And it was kind of overwhelming. This was, this was an installation. It wasn't just, you know, a group of portraits. And it was a, uh, you know, it covered, you know, 150 years of our history. And it was, it was, it was, uh, I was overwhelmed by it. I was too. And, and, and you and I and several other people who were, um, who were, people who had sat for portraits went into classrooms and the students were absolutely engaged with the, with the conversation. I thought it was a curriculum for the ages. I really did. But then again, you and I were in Chicago and I think we had 10 portraits at the Jane Addams Hall house and they were kind of organized around people who had been important in Chicago or had Chicago roots and uh, I remember Studs Terkel was on the wall, and Ella Baker, and Jane Addams. Um, but we also had other civil rights leaders. Um, and once again, I hadn't thought of it at the time, but looking at these large portraits of folks staring at you, um, and then with a with a quote scratched into the into the board, um, saying something important about freedom and about peace, I found quite moving and quite different than giving a speech than being didactic and i think that's part of what you're saying about what art can do it's not di it's not didactic in the sense of self-righteously giving a speech it's it invites you in well it it, it does invite you in and, and that's funny i mean i've never thought of it quite the way you just said it but that's what it's the art that keeps it from feeling uh, overwhelmingly didactic because you're not just getting an idea you're getting an emotion you're getting a sense of integrity you're getting a sense of commitment you're getting a sense of courage from from people so that the emotional uh, impact of the portrait uh, is uh, this ethos which you enter and then see that there are words there and so and then the words become part of that message of the look of the portrait, the gaze of the person in the portrait. And it uh, is, is something more than just somebody saying, oh, this is what you got to do. Well, exactly. And the, and the words and the picture, and as you said, the craft, the art itself, what you actually did as an artist, and then the invitation to go deeper. Well, why was Frederick Douglass important? What was Jane Addams about in the end? And what does that say about our history and so on? I think that's so important, and, and I'll go back to this question of didacticism because it's something that I really don't like. I don't, I don't like it at all, and yet I, I sometimes find myself being accused of it precisely because of what you said. I remember speaking once in Minnesota 30 years ago, gave a talk to an audience in a, in a university hall, and one of the first questions was, why do you think you know more than we do? And, and I hadn't I, you know, I hadn't felt like I was saying that, but I was saying it simply by my presentation. And what your presentation does is it's more of an invitation. It's a, a person gazing at you. You're gazing back. It's inviting you into a dialogue. My presentation in Minnesota was not doing that. Well, one of the things that I like to say, um, of course, uh, not counting you, is that, um, you know, these are all, all these portraits, whether we're talking about Frederick Douglass or Abraham Lincoln or Jane Addams or whomever, uh, these are real people. They're flawed people. Uh, they're people who 
did some amazingly good things, uh, had incredible courage, but they're also real. They, they, you know, the closer we look at them, you can say, oh, well, they did that. You know, they had those blemishes. They made these mistakes. They, you know, at various times in their lives, they did the opposite of what they're saying. Yes, 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 it's all true. And, you know, that's the good news. Because it means that these are not people up on that we put on pedestals. They are models for us for living our own lives. That what actually causes change in our communities and in our society are the people who are willing, in spite of their flaws, to have the courage to stand up for something, to insist that something be done better for more justice for more people, for more freedom for more people. And that's what makes the difference. You know, another thing that's um you know, I didn't expect, I think, when I started this, uh, maybe I knew it somewhere, but not really has helped profoundly true it is in terms of, you know, we going back to what you said at the beginning about the nature of truth, is that we, when you, when we look at our history and, and look at the most important moments where democracy has actually persisted or been saved from its own worst characteristics or own you know, disappearance because of power and money. What is the thing that often upholds it the most, you know, is not the thing that we are often talked about is what was so important, our right to vote. You know, what often makes our, our real right to have, uh, you know, decisions as individuals and as communities to our own welfare and our own future are things like civil disobedience, our, you know, whistleblowing, you know, our militant action. I mean, those things that are normally thought of as being well outside the realm of a, a, a sane and, and, you know, uh, polite democratic process. That's how we succeed in actually maintaining democracy is people who choose that freedom, you know, to be in line with their ideals and in line with their conscience and then in line in, in service to other people who are also marginalized. You know, you put those things together and they demand that you act when it's unpopular to act and also illegal to act. And you say the problem here is not that I'm a bad person breaking a good law. You know, I'm a good person breaking a bad law. And that's the thing that we have to change. And you, it, it just makes, you know, we look at our, our history, you know, those moments when people have had that courage uh, to insist on that have made every bit of difference to us as a, as a uh, as a survival of, of a democratic society, and if we can survive. Yeah. You know, the, you, you make me think of a couple things. One is, um, yes, we are all human, and it goes back to Whitman, do I contradict myself very well? I am large, I contain multitudes, I contain contradictions, right? I mean, we are human, and welcome to the human condition when you talk about the flaws and the foibles and the contradictions and the backwardness of even our even our most esteemed um, models of 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 justice seeking but the other thing i was thinking of is the the picture of rosa parks that i have on my wall is rosa parks's mugshot that's the one that i like the best not not the grandmother sitting you know on the bus but she was arrested and she broke the law or you remember the the right-wing senators complaining when the martin luther king statue had him looking angry well hell are you kidding he was an angry pilgrim you know and then and, and the last thing that came to my mind was the great portrait on the cover of the new yorker when nelson mandela died and everybody was reprinting the picture of him as a wonderful grandfatherly figure and somebody uh one of the young black artists did a cover for the new yorker that was mandela at ravonia angry young fierce militant and you know defending himself uh, on a charge of treason um you know so th we have to remember that 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 it's the activism that 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 makes us that makes us free it really is it's the well, activism yeah i mean you think about to think of Rosa Parks, I mean, you know, she was asked years later, by the way, the quote that's on her portrait is, um, you know, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. You know, when I was, when I was nine years old, and she did that, you know, I was growing up in Cincinnati. And I was told that, that this is this, this woman had been working all day, her feet were tired, she was tired, she preferred to get arrested rather than moving to the back of the bus. She was, I mean, she had no moral 
you know, courage, no physical courage at all. It was just, she was tired, her feet hurt. I mean, just pathetic. You know, they wanted to turn her into a pathetic figure. Instead, you know, when she was asked later what she was thinking about that day, she said she was thinking about the face of Emmett Till. And she couldn't, you know, thinking about that face glued her to her seat. You know, she thought, I have to stand behind him. You know, right. I can't let this go by. Yeah. And that was so important. And, and so many of the people I've, you know, painted have that same kind of moment, you know, and you've got loads of those moments yourself. You think of, you know, why are you doing the thing you're doing? And, and who's, you know, in whose witness are you doing this? Right. And why is that important? And you realize that you can't move. Right. You've got to do it. Right. How do you get the people you get? I mean, it's an eclectic group, and that's also part of what I love about it. It's not entirely coherent, although you've got, what, three books out now or four books? Um, uh, of a, th a third one coming out this next month. The third is coming. But the, the, the collections give it kind of a, a wonderful coherence, and the coherence is Americans Who Tell the Truth. But there's an eclecticness to it that I also love. I love that they are not a single issue. They are a representation of intersectionality, what we call today intersectionality, but also that they, many of them are in their lives operating on several levels, several issues at once. I love that. How do you get them? How do you go from one to the other? And such a strange and interesting collection. Well, it's, um, <laughs> it is strange and interesting. <laughs> and I, uh, I would say two thirds of the people, maybe maybe three quarters of the people I painted when I started this 20 years ago, I had never heard of, you know, and so it's been a, a big educational project on my end. But I literally do not go through a day when somebody doesn't write to me or send me a letter or call me or email me and say, why haven't you painted so and so? You know, and often that's a really a worthy person. And it's a story I don't know. And it often involves a kind of courage and, a, and a, an issue that I was unacquainted with or knew not enough about. And it's, it's fascinating. I mean, for instance, this is an example. I, I had painted a portrait of Cesar Chavez. And I mean, he was one of the early portraits and an obvious one to paint. And then I got several calls and letters from people in San Antonio saying, why haven't you painted Emma Tenayuga, you know, who was doing this work, you know, back in the 1920s as a teenager leading you know, labor revolts and, and strikes as a teenager. You know, they called her La Passanaria, the passionate one, and winning these strikes during the Depression for Tejanos in Texas. I mean, amazing, you know, yeah. absolutely amazing. I never heard of her. Right. So so talk about a mugshot. I, I found a mugshot of her and, and uh, started working from that and then emailing with her relatives and saying, have I got her color right? You know, right. her hair, you know, and they helped me do it all the way through. But that kind of thing happens all the time now. And it, that's what makes it so eclectic. It keeps sort of building, in, you know, to the left, the right, the up, the down, the, you know, the different points of the compass. It goes all over the place. Well, I want to underline this point for folks who are listening, because one of the things that makes us better organizers, better educators, better human beings, better activists and better artists, is if we think of ourselves as learning all the time. And I've been with you long enough to watch you learning all the time. And you can tell a story about every one of these portraits. This is absolutely blew my mind in Syracuse, in Chicago, in Maine, that you can tell a story that goes so deep into the history because you were learning about it. You weren't somebody who knew everything and then didactically putting it out there. You were yourself a student of these folks. And in many ways, that's a lesson for all of us. Be a student, be a some, somebody who engages in deep study, even as you act out in the world. Well, just um, a few weeks ago, uh, well, no, maybe about uh, six weeks ago, I was listening to the radio and there was the New Yorker radio hour and an interview by Sarah Stillman with a woman named Dawn Wooten, who was a nurse from Tifton, Georgia, who had been a nurse in the immigrant detention camp there, where women were being horribly abused. And I listened to this interview. She's a, a black woman with five children, a single mom. And everybody in the camp knew that these women were being abused. 
I mean, forcibly sterilize, you know, hysterectomies, you know, their fallopian tubes cut out, horrible stuff. And besides other kinds of things happening to her, nobody would say anything. And she knew that if she went public with this, it would probably ruin her employment and endanger her children and herself. And she kept thinking, um, without me, these women have no voice at all. I've got to tell the story. And so she went public. She blew the whistle on it. So I, I heard that and I called, you know, I got off the, got, I was listening, driving somewhere, heard this story on the radio, got home and called Louis Clark, who's the head of the Government Accountability Project, you know, the agency, the group that defends whistleblowers, and said, you've got to connect me with this woman. And, uh, and he connected me with her lawyer, Dana Gold. And uh, Dana gave me her phone number. And within an hour, I was talking to her, you know, Love. in Tifton, Georgia. And, and I, I then went on to paint a portrait. And just a few weeks ago, the, the film about this project called Truth Tellers was played at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington. And we brought Dawn from Tifton, Georgia to the National Portrait Gallery and unveiled her portrait in front of a large crowd there and told her story and then put her on a panel with uh, Reverend Lennox Yearwood and some other people talking about uh, where we are now in this, in the, you know, in terms of history and the necessity of action and things like that. She was marvelous, yeah. but that's how it keeps building. You know, I hear a story and I'm just blown away saying that is another person I've got to paint, yeah. you know, and I need to support that person. You know, part of this is for people like that, this project can now is strong enough that it can actually support somebody. You know, she is totally isolated in Georgia. And so when she, you know, receives this, you know, this commendation of her portrait gets painted, people treat her a little bit differently, or at least might. <laughs> well, and that's, that's a great satisfaction. Great, great example. Uh, Rob, we're running out of time. Um, I, I want you to maybe do one more thing if you have time, um, which is maybe just pick out a couple of portraits and tell us the stories of, and, and people who you think of as quintessential freedom fighters. Um, I've seen so many, I don't want to pick any, but could you tell us a couple stories that folks might not know of freedom fighters? Well, I'll just, well, first I'll add to one, you know, this morning I was um, thinking about Chelsea Manning, uh, whose portrait I painted. Um, and I painted Chelsea Manning when Chelsea was still Bradley Manning. Mm. Um, and I think of what a fragile person that was, uh, Bradley Manning, uh, fragile because he's in the intelligence agencies and is so isolated there thinking that what he knew, which was the same thing as a lot of other people knew about us war conduct was a terrible thing and should not be hidden from the American people, but how dangerous an idea that was that people should know what we do in other places and he was also at that time or she was at that time very fragile in terms of her identity um you know still in presenting as a man feeling like she was a woman and knowing that this was something else that needed to be made public or who she was and to take, be able to negotiate those two things at the same time you know, to tell this truth about uh, American war crimes and become the person behind that when she was so fragile a person, um, you know, in terms of our sexual and gender identity, is also to say what an incredibly strong person this was mm -hmm. and what an, an enormous conscience this was. Um, I, I, you know, can't quite get over uh, the ability of a person, and then to take the brunt of the the uh, you know the government coming down on her. I mean, she knew she was up against you know the biggest power in the world as one person, right. you know, and that she would be treated like that. I mean, she was put in jail, she was tortured, you know, all these things happened to her. I mean, horrible things happened to her, and she didn't stop. You know, I, I just mm -hmm. um, th that that's to me is a remarkable story, and. Uh, um, you know, a similar one is uh, Daniel Hale, who I recently painted, the whistleblower around drones, mm. you know, who had been a, a drone pilot, who understood all along that as much as as many as nine out of 10 people that were being killed by drones were innocent civilians. 
and that he could no longer do that. They couldn't keep that separation between what he knew as a person and what he was responsible for and what his actions were. That he had to, you know, you know, he, he had to make something real there. That he had to, you know, uh, find an authentic way to have a conscience as a real person, and he had to blow the whistle on it. I mean, that's you know, when people. Um, I don't know. It's, it's for me to paint a portrait and do what I do to say the things I do is, is nothing compared to uh, the kind of courage um, that, you know, William Sloan Coffin said, without courage, there are no other virtues. Mm. And sometimes those courage, those courages are so immense uh, and, and done by such isolated people. You know, they're isolated in the midst of the, you know, the belly of the beast. And I, and I think, that, you know, to do that is so admirable. And so that's why, you know, one of the reasons why I feel like I've got to paint these people. Um, and that's, that makes me feel, um, uh, it puts, it just, you know, <laughs> it puts me on the right side of history. Yeah, not only on the right side of history, but in a way, I mean, what you're saying to me, and this is something that I have been evolving toward, just like truth, it's very hard to define freedom in once and for all. There's always more to say. But the two examples you just picked, and I would go back and say Frederick Douglass and uh, Rosa Parks and many others, where each of them finds freedom is fighting against unfreedom. That's where they find it. They don't find freedom in some state of, you know, lying in a hammock, drinking a beer. They find their freedom when they actually confront the wall that stands in front of them, that's either limiting their or other people's freedoms. You know, um, you know, another person like that of the, of the same caliber is Edward Snowden. And, you know, the, the day that he first appeared from that hotel room in uh, Hong Kong, the next day I started painting his portrait. I knew that this was going to be what was going to happen to him. I knew how he was going to be attacked. But I also understood exactly what he was saying, and it was so simple. You know, what he was saying was, you know, um, and this was the message behind it, that a government derives its just power from the consent of the governed. And if the government, if the, the, the governed don't know what the government is doing, how in the world can it give its consent? And then what kind of government do you have if it's a, a government of lies and secrets and broken laws? And he, that's his, you know, it was so clear. And, you know, there is such a choice there. I mean, for all of us, I mean, if we think that our security is more important than our certain kinds of political freedoms, you know, we can choose security. As a matter of fact, we could, we could have a vote in this country saying, do we think it's a good idea for the NSA and the CIA to collect every bit of information about us? You know, our, our emails, our calls, our this and that. And because we might be more secure then, or do we think that we our privacy demands that we shouldn't do that? Why not make that a democratic choice? That's basically what he was saying. If you're going to do these things in a democratic society, make it a choice so people can choose. And um, that was instead he becomes a traitor, you know, for doing that. Yeah. Um, but in fact, he was a truth teller. Rob, I, I tell you, every time I talk to you, I feel armored and ready to go out and storm the citadel. So I can't tell you, I know, and I'm going to do it again today. Um, no, I can't tell you how, how valuable this is to me. And I think to people who hear this, and I, I want them all go online and find Americans who tell the truth. Do you have a, a way of contacting you? Yes, right. If you go to the website, uh, Americans to Tell the Truth, there's contact emails and numbers and all kinds of stuff there. But I invite people to go to the portrait gallery and just start reading, looking at the portraits. You can click on any one of them and you get a biography. You get a, you know, some lesson plans. You get historical context. You get things that are going on. I mean, we may even find those speeches of yours where you thought that you were being too didactic. They may be on there. There's all kinds of stuff. Well, I'll tell you, I urge everyone to do it. Art, education, activism, three pillars of a participatory democracy. And Rob, you represent all of them. I appreciate you so much, and I thank you for your time. Oh, thanks, Bill. It was wonderful to talk with you, as always.
Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the Generative and Provocative Podcast Ergo. To my co-conspirators, Light Eile, Roxana Espos, and Palace Shaw for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a portrait of freedom. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.